0: Chapter V. PART Two, OF SONS AND LOVERS BY D. H. LAWRENCE This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In a moment the girl came back with the tart. Mrs. Morel asked coldly for the bill. Paul wanted to sink through the floor. He marvelled at his mother's hardness. He knew that only years of battling had taught her to insist even so little on her rights. She shrank as much as he. It's the last time I go there for anything, she declared, when they were outside the place, thankful to be clear. We'll go, she said, and look at keeps and boots, and one or two places, shall we? They had discussions over the pictures, and Mrs. Morel wanted to buy him a little sable brush that he hankered after, but this indulgence he refused. He stood in front of the milliner's shops and draper's shops, almost bored, but content for her to be interested. They wandered on. "'Now just look at those black grapes,' she said. "'They make your mouth water. "'I've wanted some of those for years, "'but I shall have to wait a bit before I get them.' Then she rejoiced in the florist's, standing in the doorway, sniffing. "'Oh! Oh! Isn't it simply lovely!' Paul saw, in the darkness of the shop, an elegant young lady in black peering over the counter curiously. "'They're looking at you,' he said, trying to draw his mother away. "'But what is it?' she exclaimed, refusing to be moved. Stocks, he answered, sniffing hastily. "'Look, there's a tubful.' "'So there is, red and white. "'But really, I never knew stocks to smell like it.' And, to his great relief, she moved out of the doorway, but only to stand in front of the window. "'Paul!' she cried to him, who was trying to get out of sight of the elegant young lady in black, the shop girl. "'Paul! Just look here!' He came reluctantly back. "'Now, just look at that fuchsia!' she exclaimed, pointing. "Mm," he made a curious, interested sound. "'You'd think every second as the flowers was going to fall off, "'they hang so big and heavy.' "'And such an abundance!' she cried. "'And the way they drop downwards with their threads and knots. "'Yes!' she exclaimed. "'Lovely!' "'I wonder who'll buy it,' he said. "'I wonder!' she answered. "'Not us.' it would die in our parlour. Yes, beastly cold, sunless hole. It kills every bit of plant you put in it, and the kitchen chokes them to death. They bought a few things and set off towards the station. Looking up the canal, through the dark pass of the buildings, they saw the castle on its bluff of brown, green-bushed rock, in a positive miracle of delicate sunshine. "'Won't it be nice for me to come out at dinner-time?' said Paul. "'I can go all round here and see everything. I shall love it.' "'You will?' assented his mother. He had spent a perfect afternoon with his mother. They arrived home in the mellow evening, happy and glowing and tired. In the morning he filled in the form for his season ticket and took it to the station. When he got back, his mother was just beginning to wash the floor. He sat crouched up on the sofa— "'He says it'll be here by Saturday,' he said. "'And how much will it be?' "'About one pound eleven. he said. She went on washing her floor in silence. "'Is it a lot?' he asked. "'It's no more than I thought,' she answered. "'And i will earn eight shillings a week,' he said. She did not answer, but went on with her work. At last she said, "'That William promised me, when he went to London, "'as he'd give me a pound a month. "'He's given me ten shillings, twice. "'And now I know he hasn't a farthing if I asked him. "'Not that I want it. Only just now you'd think he might be able to help with this ticket, which I never expected.' "'He earns a lot,' said Paul. "'He earns a hundred and thirty pounds, but they're all alike. They're large in promises, but it's precious little fulfilment you get.' "'He spends over fifty shillings a week on himself,' said Paul. "'And I keep this house on less than thirty, she replied, "'and I'm supposed to find money for extras. "'But they don't care about helping you once they've gone.' "'He'd rather spend it on that dressed-up creature. "'She should have her own money if she's so grand,' said Paul. "'She should, but she hasn't,' I asked him. "'And I know he doesn't buy her a gold bangle for nothing. "'I wonder who ever bought me a gold bangle?' "'William was succeeding with his gypsy, as he called her. "'He asked the girl, her name was Louisa Lily Denise Weston, "'for a photograph to send to his mother. "'The photo came, a handsome brunette, taken in profile.' smirking slightly, and it might be quite naked, for on the photograph not a scrap of clothing was to be seen, only a naked bust. "'Yes,' wrote Mrs. Morel to her son, "'the photograph of Louis is very striking, and I can see she must be attractive. But do you think, my boy, it was very good taste of a girl to give her young man that photo to send to his mother, the first? "'Certainly the shoulders are beautiful, as you say.' but i hardly expected to see so much of them at the first view morel found the photograph standing on the chiffonier in the parlour he came out with it between his thick thumb and finger who dost reckon this is he asked of his wife it's the girl our william is going with replied mrs Morell. hm mm-hmm. is a bright spark from th look on her and one has won to do him o'er much good neither who is she her name is louisa lily denise weston "'And come again to-morrow!' exclaimed the miner. "'And is her an actress?' "'She is not. She's supposed to be a lady.' "'I'll bet!' he exclaimed, still staring at the photo. "'A lady is she. "'And how much does she reckon to keep up this sort of game on?' "'On nothing. "'She lives with an old aunt, whom she hates, "'and takes what bit of money's given her.' (laughs) "Hm," said Morel, laying down the photograph. "'Then he's a fool to her taken up with such a one as that.' "'Dear Mater,' William replied, "'I'm sorry you didn't like the photograph. "'It never occurred to me when I sent it "'that you mightn't think it decent. "'However, I told Jip that it didn't quite suit "'your prim and proper notions, "'so she's going to send you another, "'that I hope will please you better. "'She's always been photographed. "'In fact, the photographers ask her "'if they may take her for nothing.' "'Presently the new photograph came "'with a little silly note from the girl. "'This time the young lady was seen "'in a black satin evening bodice, cut square with little puff sleeves, and black lace hanging down her beautiful arms. "'I wonder if she ever wears anything except evening clothes,' said Mrs. Morel sarcastically. "'I'm sure I ought to be impressed.' "'You are disagreeable, mother,' said Paul. "'I think the first one with bare shoulders is lovely.' "'Do you?' answered his mother. "'Well, I don't.' On the Monday morning the boy got up at six to start work. He had the season ticket, which had cost such bitterness, in his waistcoat pocket. He loved it with its bars of yellow across. His mother packed his dinner in a small, shut-up basket, and he set off at quarter to seven to catch the 7.15 train. Mrs. Morel came to the entry end to see him off. It was a perfect morning. From the ash-tree the slender green fruits that the children call pigeons "'were twinkling gaily down on a little breeze "'into the front gardens of the houses. "'The valley was full of a lustrous dark haze "'through which the ripe corn shimmered, "'and in which the steam from Minton Pit melted swiftly. "'Puffs of wind came. "'Paul looked over the high woods of Aldersley, "'where the country gleamed, "'and home had never pulled at him so powerfully. "'Good morning, mother,' he said, smiling, "'but feeling very unhappy.' "'Good morning,' she replied, cheerfully and tenderly. She stood in her white apron on the open road, watching him as he crossed the field. He had a small, compact body that looked full of life. She felt, as she saw him trudging over the field, that where he determined to go he would get. She thought of William. He would have leaped the fence instead of going round to the stile. He was away in London doing well. Paul would be working in Nottingham, Now she had two sons in the world. She could think of two places, great centres of industry, and feel that she had put a man into each of them, that these men would work out what she wanted. They were derived from her, they were of her, and their works also would be hers. All the morning long she thought of Paul. At eight o'clock he climbed the dismal stairs of Jordan's Surgical Appliance Factory, and stood helplessly against the first great parcel rack, waiting for somebody to pick him up. The place was still not awake. Over the counters were great dust sheets. Two men only had arrived, and were heard talking in a corner, as they took off their coats and rolled up their shirt sleeves. It was ten past eight. Evidently there was no rush of punctuality. Paul listened to the voices of the two clerks. Then he heard someone cough and saw in the office at the end of the room an old, decaying clerk in a round smoking-cap of black velvet, embroidered with red and green, opening letters. He waited and waited. One of the junior clerks went to the old man, greeted him cheerily and loudly. Evidently the old chief was deaf. Then the young fellow came striding importantly down to his counter. He spied Paul. "'Hello,' he said. "'You're the new lad?' ''Yes,'' said Paul. hm What's your name?'' ''Paul Morel.'' ''Paul Morel? All right, you come on round here.'' Paul followed him round the rectangle of counters. The room was second storey. It had a great hole in the middle of the floor, fenced as with a wall of counters, and down this wide shaft the lifts went, and the light for the bottom storey. Also there was a corresponding big oblong hole in the ceiling, and one could see above, over the fence of the top floor, some machinery, and right away overhead was the glass roof, and all light for the three storeys came downwards, getting dimmer, so that it was always night on the ground floor, and rather gloomy on the second floor. The factory was the top floor, the warehouse the second, the storehouse the ground floor. It was an insanitary, ancient place. Paul was led round to a very dark corner, "'This is the spiral corner,' said the clerk. "'Your spiral with Pappleworth. "'He's your boss. "'But he's not come yet. "'He doesn't get here till half-past eight. "'So you can fetch the letters, if you like, "'from Mr. Melling down there.' The young man pointed to the old clerk in the office. "'All right,' said Paul. "'Here's a peg to hang your cap on. "'Here are your entry ledgers. "'Mr. Pappleworth won't be long.' And the thin young man stalked away, with long, busy strides, over the hollow wooden floor. After a minute or two, Paul went down and stood in the door of the glass office. The old clerk in the smoking-cap looked down over the rim of his spectacles. "'Good morning,' he said, kindly and impressively. "'You want the letters for the spiral department, Thomas?' Paul resented being called Thomas, but he took the letters and returned to his dark place, where the counter made an angle, where the great parcel-rack came to an end, and where there were three doors in the corner.' He sat on a high stool and read the letters, those whose handwriting was not too difficult. They ran as follows. Will you please send me at once a pair of ladies' silk spiral thigh-hose, without feet, such as I had from you last year, length, thigh to knee, etc., or Major Chamberlain wishes to repeat his previous order for a silk non-elastic suspensory bandage. Many of these letters, some of them in French or Norwegian, were a great puzzle to the boy, He sat on his stool nervously, awaiting the arrival of his boss. He suffered tortures of shyness, when, at half-past eight, the factory girls for upstairs trooped past him. Mr. Pappleworth arrived, chewing a chlorodyne gum, at about twenty to nine, when all the other men were at work. He was a thin, sallow man, with a red nose, quick, staccato, and smartly but stiffly dressed. He was about thirty-six years old. There was something rather doggy, rather smart, rather cute and shrewd, and something warm and slightly contemptible about him. "'You my new lad,' he said. Paul stood up and said he was. Fetch the letters?' Mr. Pappleworth gave a chew to his gum. "'Yes.' "'Copied em? "'No. Well, come on, then. Let's look slippy. Changed your coat?' "'No. You want to bring an old coat and leave it here?' He pronounced the last words with the chlorodyne gum between his side teeth. He vanished into darkness behind the great parcel rack, reappeared coatless, turning up a smart striped shirt-cuff over a thin and hairy arm. Then he slipped into his coat. Paul noticed how thin he was, and that his trousers were in folds behind. He seized a stool, dragged it beside the boys, and sat down. "'Sit down,' he said. Paul took a seat. Mr. Pappleworth was very close to him. The man seized the letters, snatched a long entry-book out of a rack in front of him, flung it open, seized a pen, and said, Now look ye, you want to copy these letters in here? He sniffed twice, gave a quick chew at his gum, stared fixedly at a letter, then went very still and absorbed, and wrote the entry rapidly, in a beautiful, flourishing hand. He glanced quickly at Paul. See that? Yes. Think you can do it all right? Yes. All right, then. Let's see you," he sprang off his stool. Paul took a pen. Mister Pappleworth disappeared. Paul rather liked copying the letters, but he wrote slowly, laboriously, and exceedingly badly. He was doing the fourth letter and feeling quite busy and happy when Mister Pappleworth reappeared. Now then, how you gettin' on, Dunham? He leaned over the boy's shoulder, chewing and smelling of chlorodyne. Strike my bob, lad, but you're a beautiful writer," he exclaimed satirically. Never mind. How many you done? Only three. I'd a-eaten em. Get on, my lad, and put numbers on them. Here, look. Get on.' Paul ground away at the letters, while Mr. Pappleworth fussed over various jobs. Suddenly the boy started as a shrill whistle sounded near his ear. Mr. Pappleworth came, took a plug out of a pipe, and said, in an amazingly cross and bossy voice, "'Yes!' "'Paul heard a faint voice like a woman's out of the mouth of the tube. "'He gazed in wonder, never having seen a speaking tube before. "'Well,' said Mr. Pappleworth, disagreeably into the tube, "'you'd better get some of your back-work done, then.' "'Again the woman's tiny voice was heard, sounding pretty and cross. "'I've not time to stand here while you talk,' said Mr. Pappleworth, "'and he pushed the plug into the tube. "'Come, my lad,' he said imploringly to Paul, "'There's Polly crying out for them orders. Can't you book up a bit? Here, come out.' He took the book, to Paul's immense chagrin, and began the copying himself. He worked quickly and well. This done, he seized some strips of long yellow paper, about three inches wide, and made out the day's orders for the work-girls. "'You'd better watch me,' he said to Paul, working all the while rapidly." Paul watched the weird little drawings of legs and thighs and ankles, with the strokes across and the numbers, and the few brief directions which his chief made upon the yellow paper. Then Mr. Pappleworth finished and jumped up. "'Come on with me,' he said. And the yellow papers flying in his hands, he dashed through a door and down some stairs into the basement where the gas was burning. They crossed the cold, damp storeroom, then a long, dreary room with a long table on trestles, into a smaller, cosy apartment, not very high, which had been built on to the main building. In this room a small woman with a red serge blouse and her black hair done on top of her head was waiting like a proud little bantam. "'Here you are,' said Pappleworth. "'I think it is here you are,' exclaimed Polly. "'The girls have been here nearly half an hour waiting. Just think of the time wasted.' "'You think of getting your work done and not talking so much,' said Mr. Pappleworth. "'You could have been finishing off.' "you know quite well we finished everything off on saturday," cried polly flying at him her dark eyes flashing tuh, 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 he mocked "here's your new lad don't ruin him as you did the last" "as we did the last" repeated polly "yes we do a lot of ruining we do my word a lad would take some ruining after he'd been with you it's time for work now not for talk" said mr pappleworth severely and coldly "it was time for work some time back" said polly marching away with her head in the air. She was an erect little body of forty. In that room were two round spiral machines on the bench under the window. Through the inner doorway was another, longer room, with six more machines. A little group of girls, nicely dressed and in white aprons, stood talking together. "'Have you nothing else to do but talk?' said Mr. Pappleworth. "'Only wait for you,' said one handsome girl, laughing. "'Well, get on, get on,' he said. "'Come on, my lad, you'll know your road down here again.' And Paul ran upstairs after his chief. He was given some checking and invoicing to do. He stood at the desk, labouring in his execrable handwriting. Presently Mr. Jordan came strutting down from the glass office and stood behind him to the boy's great discomfort. Suddenly a red and fat finger was thrust on the form he was filling in. "'Mr. J. A. Bates, Esquire!' exclaimed the cross-voice just behind his ear. Paul looked at Mr. J. A. Bates, Esquire, in his own vile writing, and wondered what was the matter now. Didn't they teach you any better than that while they were at it? If you put Mr., you don't put Esquire. A man can't be both at once. The boy regretted his too much generosity in disposing of honours, hesitated, and with trembling fingers scratched out the Mr., Then, all at once, Mr. Jordan snatched away the invoice. "'Make another. Are you going to send that to a gentleman?' And he tore up the blue form irritably. Paul, his ears red with shame, began again. Still Mr. Jordan watched. "'I don't know what they do teach in school. You'll have to write better than that. Lads learn nothing nowadays but how to recite poetry and play the fiddle.' "'Have you seen his writing?' he asked of Mr. Pappleworth. "'Yes.' "'Prime, isn't it?' replied Mr. Pappleworth indifferently. Mr. Jordan gave a little grunt, not unamiable. Paul divined that his master's bark was worse than his bite. Indeed, the little manufacturer, although he spoke bad English, was quite gentleman enough to leave his men alone, and to take no notice of trifles. But he knew he did not look like the boss and owner of the show, so he had to play his role of proprietor at first, to put things on a right footing. "'Let's see.' What's your name? asked Mr. Pappleworth of the boy. Paul Morrell. It is curious that children suffer so much at having to pronounce their own names. Paul Morel, is it? All right, you, Paul Morrell. Through them things there, and then Mr. Pappleworth subsided onto a stool and began writing. A girl came up from out of a door just behind, put some newly pressed elastic web appliances on the counter, and returned. Mr. Pappleworth picked up the whitey blue knee band. "'examined it and its yellow order-paper quickly, and put it on one side. "'Next was a flesh-pink leg. "'He went through the few things, wrote out a couple of orders, "'and called to Paul to accompany him. "'This time they went through the door whence the girl had emerged. "'There Paul found himself at the top of a little wooden flight of steps, "'and below him saw a room with windows round two sides.' and at the farther end half a dozen girls sitting bending over the benches in the light from the window sewing they were singing together two little girls in blue hearing the door opened they all turned round to see mr pappleworth and paul looking down on them from the far end of the room they stopped singing can't you make a bit less row said mr pappleworth folk'll think we keep cats a hunchback woman on a high stool turned her long rather heavy face towards mr pappleworth and said in a contralto voice they're all tom-cats then in vain mr pappleworth tried to be impressive for paul's benefit he descended the steps into the finishing-off room and went to the hunchback fanny she had such a short body on her high stool that her head with its great bands of bright brown hair seemed over-large as did her pale heavy face she wore a dress of green-black cashmere, and her wrists, coming out of the narrow cuffs, were thin and flat, as she put her work down nervously. He showed her something that was wrong with the knee-cap. "'Well,' she said, "'you needn't come blaming it on to me. It's not my fault.' Her colour mounted to her cheek. "'I never said it was your fault. Will you do as I tell you?' replied Mr. Pappleworth shortly. "'You don't say it's my fault, but you'd like to make out as it was,' the hunchback woman cried almost in tears then she snatched the kneecap from her boss saying yes I'll do it for you but you needn't be so snappy here's your new lad said mr. Pappleworth Fanny turned smiling very gently on Paul oh she said yes don't make a softy of him between you it's not us as would make a softy of him she said indignantly come on then Paul said mr. Pappleworth I revoy Paul said one of the girls there was a titter of laughter paul went out blushing deeply not having spoken a word the day was very long all morning the workpeople were coming to speak to mr pappleworth paul was writing or learning to make up parcels ready for the midday post at one o'clock or rather at a quarter to one mr pappleworth disappeared to catch his train he lived in the suburbs at one o'clock paul feeling very lost took his dinner-basket down into the stock-room in the basement that had the long table on trestles, and ate his meal hurriedly, alone in that cellar of gloom and desolation. Then he went out of doors. The brightness and the freedom of the streets made him feel adventurous and happy. But at two o'clock he was back in the corner of the big room. Soon the work-girls went trooping past, making remarks— It was the commoner girls who worked upstairs at the heavy tasks of truss making and the finishing of artificial limbs. He waited for Mr. Pappleworth, not knowing what to do, sitting scribbling on the yellow order paper. Mr. Pappleworth came at twenty minutes to three. Then he sat and gossiped with Paul, treating the boy entirely as an equal, even in age. In the afternoon there was never very much to do, unless it were near the weekend, and the accounts had to be made up. At five o'clock all the men went down into the dungeon with the table on trestles, and there they had tea, eating bread and butter on the bare, dirty boards, talking with the same kind of ugly haste and slovenliness with which they ate their meal. And yet upstairs the atmosphere among them was always jolly and clear. The cellar and the trestles affected them. After tea, when all the gases were lighted, work went more briskly. There was the big evening post to get off, The hose came up warm and newly pressed from the workrooms. Paul had made out the invoices. Now he had the packing up and addressing to do. Then he had to weigh his stock of parcels on the scales. Everywhere voices were calling weights. There was the chink of metal, the rapid snapping of string, the hurrying to old Mr. Melling for stamps. And at last the postman came with his sack, laughing and jolly. Then everything slacked off and Paul took his dinner-basket and ran to the station to catch the 8.20 train. The day in the factory was just twelve hours long. His mother sat waiting for him rather anxiously. He had to walk from Keston, so was not home until about twenty past nine, and he left the house before seven in the morning. Mrs. Morel was rather anxious about his health, but she herself had had to put up with so much that she expected her children to take the same odds. They must go through with what came. And Paul stayed at Jordan's, although all the time he was there his health suffered from the darkness and lack of air and the long hours. He came in pale and tired. His mother looked at him. She saw he was rather pleased, and her anxiety all went. "'Well, and how was it?' she asked. "'Ever so funny, mother,' he replied. "'You don't have to work a bit hard, and they're nice with you. "'And did you get on all right?' "'Yes.' They only say my writing's bad, but Mr. Pappleworth, he's my man, said to Mr. Jordan I should be all right. I'm Spiral, mother. You must come and see. It's ever so nice." Soon he liked Jordan's. Mr. Pappleworth, who had a certain saloon-bar flavour about him, was always natural, and treated him as if he had been a comrade. Sometimes the Spiral boss was irritable, and chewed more lozenges than ever. Even then, however, he was not offensive but one of those people who hurt themselves by their own irritability more than they hurt other people. "'Haven't you done that yet?' he would cry. "'Go on, be a month of Sundays.' Again, and Paul could understand him least then, he was jocular and in high spirits. "'I'm going to bring my little Yorkshire Terrier bitch tomorrow,' he said jubilantly to Paul. "'What's a Yorkshire Terrier?' "'Don't know what a Yorkshire Terrier is. "'Don't know a Yorkshire!' "'Mr. Pappleworth was aghast. "'Is it a little silky one, colours of iron and rusty silver? "'That's it, my lad. "'She's a gem. "'She's had five pounds a worth of pups already, "'and she's worth over seven pounds herself, "'and she doesn't weigh twenty ounces.' "'The next day the bitch came. "'She was a shivering, miserable morsel. "'Paul did not care for her. "'She seemed so like a wet rag that would never dry. "'Then a man called for her and began to make coarse jokes.' but Mr. Pappleworth nodded his head in the direction of the boy, and the talk went on, sotto voce. Mr. Jordan only made one more excursion to watch Paul, and then the only fault he found was seeing the boy lay his pen on the counter. Put your pen in your ear, if you're going to be a clerk. Pen in your ear. And one day he said to the lad, Why don't you hold your shoulders straighter? Come down here. When he took him into the glass office, and fitted him with special braces for keeping the shoulders square, but Paul liked the girls best. The men seemed common and rather dull. He liked them all, but they were uninteresting. Polly, the little brisk overseer downstairs, finding Paul eating in the cellar, asked him if she could cook him anything on her little stove. Next day his mother gave him a dish that could be heated up. He took it into the pleasant clean room to Polly, and very soon it grew to be an established custom that he should have dinner with her. When he came in at eight in the morning, he took his basket to her, and when he came down at one o'clock, she had his dinner ready. He was not very tall and pale, with thick chestnut hair, irregular features, and a wide, full mouth. She was like a small bird. He often called her a robinette. Though naturally rather quiet, he would sit and chatter with her for hours, telling her about his home. The girls all liked to hear him talk. They often gathered in a little circle while he sat on a bench, and held forth to them, laughing. Some of them regarded him as a curious little creature, so serious, yet so bright and jolly, and always so delicate in his way with them. They all liked him, and he adored them. Polly he felt he belonged to. Then Connie, with her mane of red hair, her face of apple-blossom, her murmuring voice, such a lady in her shabby black frock, appealed to his romantic side. "'When you sit winding,' he said, "'it looks as if you were spinning at a spinning wheel. "'It looks ever so nice. "'You remind me of Elaine in the Idylls of the King. "'I'd draw you if I could.' And she glanced at him, blushing shyly. And later on he had a sketch he prized very much. Connie sitting on the stool before the wheel, her flowing mane of red hair on her rusty black frock, her red mouth shut and serious, running the scarlet thread off the hank onto the reel, with Louis handsome and brazen, who always seemed to thrust her hip at him, he usually joked. Emma was rather plain, rather old and condescending, but to condescend to him made her happy, and he did not mind. "'How do you put needles in?' he asked. "'Go away and don't bother.' "'But I ought to know how to put needles in.' She ground at her machine all the while steadily. "'There are many things you ought to know,' she replied. "'Tell me, then, how to stick needles in the machine.' "'Oh, the boy! What a nuisance he is! Why, this is how you do it!' He watched her attentively. Suddenly a whistle piped. Then Polly appeared, and said in a clear voice, "'Mr. Pappleworth wants to know how much longer you're going to be down here playing with the girls, Paul.' Paul flew upstairs, calling good-bye, and Emma drew herself up. "'It wasn't me who wanted him to play with the machine,' she said. As a rule, when all the girls came back at two o'clock, he ran upstairs to Fanny, the hunchback, in the finishing-off room. Mr. Pappleworth did not appear till twenty to three, and he often found his boy sitting beside Fanny, talking, or drawing, or singing with the girls. Often, after a minute's hesitation, Fanny would begin to sing. She had a fine contralto voice. Everybody joined in the chorus, and it went well. Paul was not at all embarrassed after a while sitting in the room with the half-a-dozen work-girls at the end of the song fanny would say i know you've been laughing at me don't be so soft fanny cried one of the girls once there was mention of connie's red hair fanny's is better to my fancy said emma you needn't try to make a fool of me said fanny flushing deeply no but she has paul she's got beautiful hair it's a treat of a colour said he that coldish colour like earth and yet shiny "'It's like bog-water.' "'Goodness me!' exclaimed one girl, laughing. "'How I do but get criticised, said Fanny. "'But you should see it down, Paul,' cried Emma earnestly. "'It's simply beautiful. "'Put it down for him, Fanny, if he wants something to paint.' "'Fanny would not, and yet she wanted to. "'Then I'll take it down myself,' said the lad. "'Well, you can if you like,' said Fanny. "'And he carefully took the pins out of the knot, and the rush of hair, of uniform dark brown, slid over the humped back. "'What a lovely lot!' he exclaimed. The girls watched. There was silence. The youth shook the hair loose from the coil. "'It's splendid,' he said, smelling its perfume. "'I'll bet it's worth pounds.' "'I'll leave it to you when I die, Paul,' said Fanny, half-joking. "'You look just like anybody else, sitting, drying their hair,' said one of the girls to the long-legged hunchback. Poor Fanny was morbidly sensitive, always imagining insults. Polly was curt and business-like. The two departments were forever at war, and Paul was always finding Fanny in tears. Then he was made the recipient of all her woes, and he had to plead her cause with Polly. So the time went along happily enough. The factory had a homely feel. No one was rushed or driven. Paul always enjoyed it when the work got faster, towards post-time, and all the men united in labour. He liked to watch his fellow clerks at work. The man was the work, and the work was the man, one thing for the time being. It was different with the girls. The real woman never seemed to be there at the task, but as if left out, waiting. From the train going home at night, he used to watch the lights of the town, sprinkled thick on the hills, fusing together in a blaze in the valleys. He felt rich in life, and happy, Drawing farther off, there was a patch of lights at Bulwell, like myriad petals shaken to the ground from the shed stars, and beyond was the red glare of the furnaces, playing like hot breath on the clouds. He had to walk two and more miles from Keston home, up two long hills, down two short hills. He was often tired, and he counted the lamps climbing the hill above him, how many more to pass. And from the hill-top, On pitch-dark nights he looked round on the villages five or six miles away that shone like swarms of glittering, living things, almost a heaven against his feet. Marlpool and Hena scattered the far-off darkness with brilliance, and occasionally the black valley space between was traced, violated by a great train rushing south to London or north to Scotland. The trains roared by like projectiles, level on the darkness, fuming and burning, making the valley clang with their passage. They were gone, and the lights of the towns and villages glittered in silence. And then he came to the corner at home, which faced the other side of the night. The ash-tree seemed a friend now. His mother rose with gladness as he entered. He put his eight shillings proudly on the table. "'It'll help, mother?' he asked wistfully. There's precious little left, she answered, after your ticket and dinners and such are taken off. Then he told her the budget of the day. His life-story, like an Arabian night's, was told, night after night, to his mother. It was almost as if it were her own life. End of Chapter 5, Part 2 Read by Tony Foster